The Charles Adler Show starts now. Welcome back to the podcast. So we like to tell the truth on the program. I never thought I'd uh, live in a period of time where I actually had to tell an audience that I, I prefer the truth. But the, the, the truth is just is just optional uh, these days in so many areas. So we've got a, a, a professor of law and science policy, health law and science policy from the University of Alberta. And uh, he is known uh, hither and yon for his uh, radio appearances, his uh, TV shows. He's uh, done a marvelous show on Netflix. And, and it's all about the truth. And so uh, before we do anything else, uh, Professor Tim Caulfield at the University of Alberta, welcome back. Thank you very much for being in my life and, and being in my professional life. Thanks for having me on, Charles. Really looking forward to this. So I wanted to I wanted to begin uh, by simply asking you uh, the question that relates to my uh, brief uh, remarks. Did you ever think, whether it was in high school, university, at, at any stage in your life, did you ever think that you could make a living and have a big brand across the world just for espousing truth? I no is <laughs> the short answer. Uh, I, I've been doing this for almost three decades. I've been, you know, working in this, in this space and, uh, you know, I never thought it was going to get this bad. It, it really is, is remarkable. And to be honest with you, Charles, even, even four or five years ago, uh, so, you know, before the pandemic, uh, even after, even after Trump, you know, 2016 is often given as the, as sort of the the starting point of of this current age of untruth, um, I didn't think it would be as bad as it is now, um, where you have such a large percentage of of the population, and uh, yes, primarily in the United States, but it's happening here in Canada too. Such a large percentage of the population embracing things that are demonstrably false. You know, and, and you know the classic example now is in the United States, depending on what survey you look at, uh, sixty to seventy percent of Republican voters believe the big lie, right? And this is this is a lie. It's not a um, people of reputable backgrounds, you know, disputing facts. This is something that, you know, flat Earth kind of 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 lie. Uh, you have, you know, huge percentages of, of Canadians um, open to the idea that the vaccine, the COVID vaccines had microchips in them. Again, depending on what survey that you look at, anywhere between, you know, 20 to 30 percent, you know, huge percentages of, of Canadians believing that the vaccine killed more individuals than, than COVID it's just stunning. And the other other aspect, Charles, that I think find fascinating is the degree now, and and also worrisome. I'm always an optimist. I've been on your show before. You know, I'm an optimist. Um, the one of the things that's making me a little more pessimistic is the degree to which this has become about ideology. Right? It really has become so incredibly linked to ideology. And yes, it's largely coming from one quarter of the ideological spectrum now. But that's this cultural moment. It hasn't always been like that. And we can come back to that. I think it's important to reflect on the degree to which uh, this is a cultural moment where it's coming largely from. And yes, there's good empirical independent research to back this up, largely coming from the right uh, at this point. But this is in the past, it's come more from the left. So it's important to recognize that. 
So just, just before we started this conversation, I'm, I'm looking at this clip of uh, Pierre Polyev in the 905 area code in Ontario uh, door knocking with a, with a candidate. And a woman comes to the door and it was, you know, clearly set up because, the, you know, this was uh, well mic'd. So he knew that the, the mic was on, the camera was on. And um, I guess it's set up with a, a conservative voter. And uh, she starts out by telling him uh, that uh, Pierre Trudeau ruined the country. I mean, you're living in Alberta. It's, you, you can hear that on any street corner, almost anywhere in the province of Alberta and elsewhere, of course, but primarily in Alberta. And so uh, as soon as she babbles the stuff about how Pierre Trudeau ruined the country, Pierre Polyev responds with, yes, he and his son are Marxists. And I'm just wondering if it wasn't for the big lie about, you know, how the election wasn't really lost by Donald Trump, how he won the uh, the election, you started out by talking about the big lie. If it wasn't for the big lie and so many other big lies, do you think there's a chance that someone who actually aspires to be prime minister would be knocking on doors and telling Canadians that Pierre Trudeau and his son are, are Marxists? I mean, I just, I just wonder how deep the, how deep the deceit has gone. Uh, no, I, I, to answer your question, no, I, I think that we are living in this era where there's incredible tolerance for misinformation, for you know, tolerance for conspiracy theories and and tolerance for lies. And you know, I think that that has made room for it's it's enabled individuals to say ridiculous things like that. And and look, you don't have to be a fan of Trudeau. You can be you know critical of of his government. And um, is he a Marxist? <laughs> no. Is there any evidence that he, you know, espouses to these Marxists? And and it's almost comical in a way. You know, the liberals are sort of the centrist government, uh, a minority government, and he's held up by the haters as if, as if he's some kind of dictator. Which, look, you don't have to be a fan of him. I'm critical of of many of his policies, um, but that's how that kind of framing and that kind of assertion is is given room now, I think, because we live in this age of untruth or this post-truth post era where you're supposed to give room to and, and these kinds of, of absurdity. So I could uh, play the game, I guess, that uh, many uh, media people play and say, well, you know, uh, Pierre Polyev is just giving one side of the story. Uh, you know, he's saying that uh, Pierre Trudeau and and Justin Trudeau are Marxists, and other people like uh, Timothy Caulfield and Charles Adler say he isn't. But, but both 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 these positions should be weighed equally. Uh, both sidesism. Timothy Caulfield, what do you think of both sidesism? Uh, in, in an incredibly frustrating, damaging um, phenomenon. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I, was trying to, I was trying to think of a a kind a kind word to to frame it because it's it's you know it's total BS really. Um, and uh, we're seeing more and more of it. And, and as you know, it's, it's really a version of false balance. And as a journalist, you know that false balance is, you know, a concern that's been around really for decades, you know, probably centuries. Um, and it's this idea that you're supposed to give, you know, both sides of an argument, no matter, no matter what the evidence says, sort of equal weight. And, and, and we know that false balance can do real harm. There have been a lot of interesting studies with climate change, with vaccines, with GMOs that have shown that, that false balance can have a really adverse impact on public perceptions uh, and policy discussions. We've done research on this ourselves. Um, and uh, that's what we're seeing more and more of. And, and the problem is it's not just coming from, uh, from the media. Uh, it's 
coming it's being generated by by social media right and by political positioning of issues so an issue like vaccines becomes especially in the united states but increasingly here in canada is becoming an ideological topic now and who would have guessed that you know a topic that should be informed solely by the evidence has become an ideological um issue and um that creates this both sidism and what we need to do is push back against that with an approach that embraces the weight of evidence so what does the weight of evidence say on on this topic right um what does the weight of evidence say uh, uh, about you know climate change about geo safety of gmos about vaccines or even political topics like is <laughs> is trudeau a marxist uh, but we don't seem to do that anymore. And if you espouse that position, Charles, you are, uh, it, it's asserted that you are trying to censor people, that you are trying to uh, silence uh, an important perspective when that's not the case at all. And if I may, I know I'm going on for a bit, I'm quite passionate about this. One of the things I find frustrating is you hear that counter to the idea of, oh, we shouldn't allow false violence all the time. And what I find so ironic about it is those who are saying they've been silenced, uh, that their censorship are often saying it uh, on the world's most popular podcast, you know, 100 million listeners, or or they're saying it on the, the most popular cable news show that they've been silenced. Um, and almost any of the topics that you can outline, I've, you know, and I've named some of them already, there hasn't been any silencing. On the contrary, the, these perspectives have been overrepresented uh, in, in pop culture. They haven't been silenced. They're everywhere. They're absolutely everywhere. And in addition to that, they've been studied and studied and studied and studied, probably studied too much, right? Uh, and been shown to be wrong. But the evidence is ignored and the both sidism continues. Never apologize uh, for, for being passionate about anything, uh, Professor Caulfield. And uh, one of the reasons I'm passionate about this false equivalence, false balance issue is because uh, when I was young, perhaps too young, uh, because of what happened uh, to my ancestors, I studied authoritarianism. You cannot have authoritarianism, whether it's Nazism, communism. You can't have any of these sick, disgusting isms without promoting false balance, without promoting the big lie, without promoting the idea that there is an equivalent between vaccines are helpful to prevent people uh, from becoming really sick with COVID and then saying vaccines are killing people and then declaring that they're both morally equal uh, positions, that kind of false balance. Can you explain to us from a professor's perspective and an author's perspective what the linkage is between authoritarianism and this idea of both sides is and why it's so helpful when you're trying to build an authoritarian culture. Well, it does a lot of things. And I, and I think as a lead to that, that question, I think it's important to, to note the degree to which um, the topics which we see the most false balance, the most both side-isms are almost always topics that have become politicized, right? We don't, we don't hear about false balance so much when you're talking about the Bernoulli effect that makes airplanes fly, right? You know, no one's, no one's sort of concerned about having, you know, the flying carpet expert versus the aeronautical um, engineer discussing flight. You know, people accept the scientific consensus and those in most domains in our life, 
we accept the scientific consensus, recognizing that science always evolves and that we have to give respected minority positions their due and we need to always scientifically challenge conventional wisdom. Everyone knows that, right? But we, we accept their scientific consensus about important topics that inform our personal decisions and they inform policy. But when a topic, topic becomes politicized, um, that uh, we invite both side-isms and false balance in, into the equation. And if you and if you push back against that, you're silencing. So it does a couple, for an authoritarian regime, it does a couple of things, right? And by the way, there's really interesting research to back up exactly what you, you've said, Charles. In, in, in countries that lean more towards authoritarianism, and increasingly that includes the United States, you see more misinformation, you see more acceptance of misinformation. Um, and there's some really recent uh, research that shows that can even happen sort of on the micro level where there are authoritarian leaders in 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 companies where you know the the leader is of the company is has a more authoritarian uh, ethos more that members of that company are more likely to embrace mi misinformation they want to, you want to destabilize the truth and uh, that's one of the reasons that you see it emerge all the time you want to doubt monger you want to create uncertainty you want to create fear and anxiety that makes room for right that makes room for uh, the voice and the perspective of the authoritarian leader be it in a company uh, or be it uh, at the level of the nation state if i constantly uh yammer about uh, the prime minister being a marxist and let's just be clear about that if I accuse him of being the kind of person who wants to ban many, many freedoms that Marxists would ban, including the freedom to own private property, including the freedom for the government to seize your private property, whether it's your home, your business, your car, your, your, your gold watch, whatever it is the government wants to take from you, the government can confiscate everything from you because the government essentially owns your life. So that's a loose definition of Marxism. If I can convince a critical mass of Canadians that this prime minister is indeed a Marxist, that he wants to take away everything that you have and everything that you own, am I not enabling those people who want to advocate for the violent overthrow of the government? Well, it, it, the, I can think the short answer is, is yes, but we don't even need to go to that kind of of extreme, right, Charles? We saw that obviously what happened in the United States, right, with January sixth. So it may sound like you're using hyperbole here, but we saw it play out to a degree in the United States with January sixth for the exact reasons that we've talked about, right, Charles? Um, but in addition to that, all you need to do is create create doubt. So there was a really interesting study from the United States that again came out very, very recently, last couple of weeks, that talked about, you know, the, the degree to which Americans still believe misinformation about so many things, right? Um, and, you know, generally speaking, I'm overgeneralized here, you, the, the rates were somewhere between 30 and 40% of people believed misinformation. I'll, I'll put, I'll even say less than that. Let's say 15 15 to 25 percent really believed misinformation about you know gun control aspects, you know COVID stuff, you know climate change, you know, all all. But what the researchers note noted is that what they found the most scary was the number of people that just were uncertain, right, Charles? So you have this middle hunk where there's like 40 percent of the population that's kind of uncertain about these things. If you can just create doubt about 
about stuff, right? It it makes it easier to, well, you know, you're gonna are you gonna vote for Trudeau or not? Well, you know, I heard the stuff about him being a Marxist. I don't know if it's true or not, but that sounds scary. If you can just introduce that doubt, it can have a real impact on people's beliefs and and behavior. And I think that, that we're seeing that increasingly. I think in the past, what you would have seen is more certainty, right? Where people would go, no, that's not true. And then you have sort of those hardcore people on the other side that said, well, you know, it is true. But unfortunately, sort of that uncertain middle is growing and it's growing because of the power and the rhetoric that it's emanating from those pushing conspiracy theories and misinformation. Are we at a crazy point in this country, uh, Professor Caulfield, where some people refuse to give shots to their own dogs? I'm talking about rabies shots. I'm talking about a situation where it's not COVID that I'm talking about now, but that we could have actually a breakout of rabies in Canada because people refuse to give their animals shots. I mean, is that really happening or is that just kind of a, a story that's, that's out there being promoted by, by people who want to create mischief? That's really happening. And, you know, I'm familiar with the researchers who did this. It's funny because I posted about this uh, on, on some of my social media platforms a few days ago. And some people thought it was like a hoax. <laughs> like, you know, this can't be real. Uh, but it's oh so real. And as I said, I'm familiar with the researchers who did it. And they actually, you know, uh, reached out to me after I posted it. Um, yeah, so there's interesting research. And by the way, this builds on, on research that's been done in the past. It's this sort of kind of replicating other research. There's a growing number, uh, and we're not talking, we're talking a huge hunk in the United States. About 50% of people in the United States are now uncertain whether they should give their pets vaccines. It's a spillover from the misinformation that emanated around COVID vaccines, right? So they just created sort of this general hesitancy about vaccines for themselves, and now increasingly for their pets, even around things, as you point out, like the rabies vaccines. Um, and uh, I think it's 40% of pet owners in the United States are worried that vaccines will give their dogs autism. So that's, that's where we are, the scientific absurdity of that 40%, Charles. Um, and that is a direct result of the spread of misinformation, um, sort of the, the tolerance of pseudoscience and the tolerance of both sides, both sidesism, and, and and I think it's also important to note, really important to note, that this is happening with human vaccines too, where you're seeing an increasing percentage of parents who are more hesitant about childhood vaccinations. So we're talking about the potential that the not just the potential, this is going to kill people. I think that you know, again, it sounds like I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm not. Uh, I think it's clear that this is going to have extremely adverse uh, impact on vaccination rates. And then, you know, people are going to die, including kids. So if Canadian moms and dads uh, don't want to give their kids a measles vaccine, uh, for all the reasons that you've just uh, stated, um, buying into the uh, big lie that the measles vaccine um, can create autism in a child. Um, are we now flirting with the idea of a measles epidemic in Canada or any other country where this kind of philosophy is taking root? Well, we are. And I think that there are epidemiologists that, well, first of all, we've seen it happen, right? We've seen it play out in either sort of on a smaller scale in, in locations in the United States where uh, there's low vaccination rates. Um, and uh, so you absolutely see measles outbreaks. And the concern is this is going to grow, right? It's going to grow from just these relatively isolated uh, situations to a, a broader, a broader outbreak. And, and, you know, uh, people often go, oh, well, measles, you know, I had it when I was a kid, it's not a big deal. 
it kills, you know, tens of thousands of kids every year in the world, Charles. You know, it's a, it, it is a, a disease that that can kill children and have long term consequences for for their health. And I think people just see that, you know, the majority of the people have the measles and they recover, and then they have a degree of, of immunity. Um, but uh, this is a disease that we know can can kill and and have you know serious health consequences in addition to that we know the vaccine is extremely effective here so you really are ta- making a de- uh, taking a decision that can have adverse impact for yourself and and for your community and i also think it's important to re- highlight the degree to which this is about ideology right you know consistently this shows that those who hold these kinds of views about vaccines are generally speaking of a particular ideological leaning. Can I, if I, if you could give me a moment, I'm going to give you a really good example of the degree to which this is about ideology. So Marin County in, in California, I don't know if you've been there, Charles, it's a beautiful part of the world. It includes, uh, just so people know, Marin County includes San Francisco. Yeah, it's just it's just outside San Francisco, right? Over the Golden Gate Bridge. I have a friend, I have a friend who lives there, Jen Gunter. I've been, you know, it's gorgeous. And um it is extremely democratic, <laughs> extremely liberal, uh extremely educated, very very affluent as you can imagine. These are not cheap homes we're talking about here. Before the pandemic, Charles, Marin County was one of the most unvaccinated places in the United States. And you can imagine it's, you know, yoga, it's, you know, new agey, and people were not getting vaccinated for a particular reason. The pandemic happens, being unvaccinated becomes an ideological flag, largely for the Republican Party, for the GOP, right, in the United States, it becomes this flag, right? Um, And presto, Marin County becomes one of the most vaccinated places in the United States. So, and I think this is really important to highlight, right? Because it it's it really speaks to the degree to which this is about ideology. This is about personal brands. So you have this group of affluent, educated, intelligent people not vaccinating. Hey, I don't want to be viewed as a Republican anymore. Presto, I'm getting vaccinated. So I think that that is both depressing and also very, very... Professor Timothy Caulfield, you're, you're talking about Marin County and you're talking about human intelligence. You're, you're talking about essentially what I see as a war on, on the human mind. Now, this has been taking place for a number of years. We referred earlier to authoritarianism, which is always about disparaging the so-called elites, starting out with the intellectual elites, if you don't mind me putting it this way, uh, people like yourself and uh, uh, Jen Gunter, who you mentioned earlier, maybe some of your other friends in Marin County and elsewhere. Do you believe in your in your intellect, never mind your heart of hearts, but in your intellect, based on your research, do you believe that there is a war on right now around the world against people who have education? Do you believe there's a war on the educated mind on this planet? I will say I think there's a definitely an information war that is is being waged. I think there is a war being waged on science and and uh, the scientific process in order to create doubt. Um, and we know this because there's evidence of that state actors are involved. 
So I guess it depends on your definition of war. Um, but we know that there are countries around the world that are using social media and and other means to just to create information chaos, right? And and Charles, that's the goal, right? You know, they may not have a particular um, even agenda. Sometimes they do, and there's evidence to back that up. But sometimes they're just trying to create information chaos. Um, and it's very unfortunately, we also know it's it's very very effective. Um, so I, I do think that this is the case, and and. We're also seeing, you know, particular parties um, that are political parties that are using the same means to create doubt on important topics, um, to create mistrust. And, and, and I think this is really important to highlight and isn't stated enough because, you know, I fight misinformation. It's one of the you know things that I do research on and I'm, I feel very passionate about it. And I'll, you know, talk about, um, you know, perhaps to the general public or, uh, in the media for people with uh, with people like you uh, or on social media. And often what I get back from the public is, well, of course, misinformation is spreading because we can't trust institutions anymore. Institutions um, are have been bought out. They can't be trusted, whether you're talking about healthcare institutions, research institutions, uh, the, judici uh, judici the judiciary, <laughs> um, political leaders. And I think it's really important to highlight that those who are pushing misinformation, the mis misinformation mongers, I often call them, their goal is to create distrust, right? That's the agenda, right? So people distrust institutions in part, not entirely, but in part because the misinformation that is spreading has caused them to distrust institutions, which makes room for more misinformation. Now, I want to pause here and say, yes, 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 there are often completely legitimate reasons for distrust in institutions, you know, especially historically. There are communities, indigenous communities in, in Canada that have completely legitimate reasons for distrusting institutions. And there are other, other examples. But I, I think we shouldn't forget that so much of the distrust that exists right now exists because of the spread of misinformation. And in fact, Charles, this is something that that we want to study. We're put, we've put in a couple of grants where we want to uh, get empirical evidence to back up what, I, what I've just said. And I have anecdotal evidence that this is the case. Whenever someone tells me, well, I can't trust an institution, I can't trust the FDA, I can't trust Health Canada, I can't trust the Public Health Agency of Canada, the reason they don't trust them is based on misinformation, right? They lied about the vaccines. Um, they, they lied about the value of public health measures. Um, and um, that, I think, is often lost because it's almost like we're giving in to the misinformation mongers when we accept the idea that the distrust is completely legitimate. Um, now, again, I want to be careful. This is nuanced. It's, it's complex. And we have to listen to why people distrust institutions. We have to make trustworthy institutions. We have to make them better. We have to learn and we have to uh, improve, uh, but we can't forget the role of misinformation in the creation of distrust. Timothy Caulfield is a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. He's a professor in the Faculty of Law and the School of Public Health and Research at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. 
Dr. Caulfield, Professor Caulfield, excuse me, I promised I wouldn't call you a doctor because I know that doctor just uh, encourages uh, the trolls uh, to go after you. The doctor has become a, a bad word in Alberta and some other parts of the world. I, I get that. So my apologies if I slip and, and call you a doctor as I have for, for the last number of years. Professor Professor Caulfield, help, help us under, understand uh, something here. How difficult is it to bring about distrust in institutions when you have access to a media camera, a media microphone, and you can take anything that let's, I'll just use the example of a Dr. Fauci. You can use anything that Dr. Fauci says on a Monday in January, compare it to a Monday in March when uh, things have changed uh, surrounding uh, the pandemic. Uh, There is new information and clearly his message may be different in March than it was in January. How difficult is it for me as a media manipulator to say, well, you see, here's why you cannot trust Tony Fauci. Yeah, I get that that message every day. Every day someone sends me um, some some version of, of what you've you've just said. So a couple things here. Let's start with the legitimate concerns. You know, early days in the pandemic, um, the messaging wasn't ideal. You know, there was some dogmatism to some of the statements that were that were made, not all of them. Not all of them, but there was some dogmatism and and there's reasons for that. You know, when you're when you are in the midst of a pandemic, you turn to, you know, what are the the best practices for public health messaging? And one of them is, you know, speak with certainty, uh, give actionable advice. And I think it's fair to say that early days, you know, mistakes were made and we need to recognize that we have to. Um, be explicit about the scientific uncertainty and say, to the best of our knowledge, right now, this is our our advice. Um, and I think that things got better as the pandemic played out. But you see this kind of sort of quote cherry picking um, happening on a, on several topics. You know, masks, uh, the role of vaccines, um, where the you know the the uh, where the the pandemic started. Um, and they manipulate, uh, the, the narrative in order to make it seem like there was some kind of conspiracy or that the voice simply can't be trusted. Now, someone like Fauci probably there's thousands and thousands of quotes, you know, so they take one, uh, and there might've been, you know, 999 on the topic where he's more nuanced and they take that one quote and they sort of weaponize it. Right. Um, you know, anecdotally, it happens to me all the time. I'm sure it happens to you, Charles. Um, and you know they take your quote out of context and they and they try they they spin it. Um, the lab leak theory is a really good example of that. Um, early days, uh, there was sort of overstatements about the lab leak. You know, it's a conspiracy theory if you say it's the lab leak. Um, and part of that was because the lab leak was being pushed by sort of hardcore conspiracy theorists, right? Uh, and so we're talking, you know, early 2020. But if you actually, and we've, you know, I've done this, you know, you look at the public narrative coming from officials really from December, 2020 on, it was more nuanced. That's completely forgotten, right? You compare 2020 to the ambiguity, ambiguity, oh my gosh, Charles, I haven't had enough coffee yet today. (laughs) Ambiguity. (laughs) Thank you. The uncertainty (laughs) that we have today, right? Around, around the lab leak. And it looks like there was some something afoot, right? Something afoot, which is you know re- really unfair. So I, I think that uh, the then layer on top of that AI, 
um, where you can just create images and create sound bites um, out of thin air. There's an interesting study that came out, I'm going to say two weeks ago, that found that most educators, uh, up to 50% educators, could not tell when a, a video had been manipulated or wholly created by AI, just to give you a sense of how challenging the future is going to be. So when we hear all of this, it is natural for a person to ask the question, when are things going to get better? Can't you guys give us a solution? Those, those kinds of questions come up. So how the heck, there's an academic word for you, how, how, the, how the heck, Professor Tim Caulfield, uh, do we have any idea when things will turn around? And can we blame people who are on the cynical side who think, well, it's bound to get a lot worse before it gets better? What are your thoughts? You know, I, I can't blame them at all for being a little bit pessimistic. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm always an optimist, glass half full. Um, so let's talk about the reasons we can be optimistic about, about things getting better. Um, I, I think this issue is being taken very, very seriously now. Uh, we recently were, we even heard the, you know, the UN saying we need an international action on this. Virtually every nation state now, every, every uh, leader uh, recognizes that the spread of misinformation, you know, especially in the OECD countries, recognize that the spread of misinformation is a serious, serious problem that needs to be addressed. Um, the other reason I think that there's some cause for optimism is that we have more and more research on this. You know, we have bigger and better studies exploring um, what strategies work, what strategy, strategies don't work. And the other reason is, you know, despite what you often hear, and, and often this is a false balance pr problem, most people, even in the United States, Charles, uh, think that we need to take steps to deal with misinformation. There's an interesting study that was published by Pew that found that 65%, this is really shocking data, I think, 65% of Americans think that uh, battling misinformation is more important than freedom of expression. Think about that, right? And and you never hear that. You don't hear that from the GOP. You don't hear that. And, and to be honest with you, I'm not even sure if I agree with it. <laughs> but uh, that gives you a sense of how, how many people in the United, United States where freedom of expression, as you know, is like, you know, paramount social value. Even there, they recognize. So those are reasons to be optimistic, right? We, we are figuring out how, how, how to move forward. Reasons to be pessimistic, we've touched on them. The ideology problem, you know, I... I the, Whenever misinformation becomes about ideology, it becomes more difficult to change people's minds. It becomes more difficult to, to, to actually challenge it because then you, get, then you hear the censorship, silencing kind of rhetoric. So I, I think that that's, that's a problem, reason to be, to be pessimistic. And the other one is AI. Holy cow. AI is going to make this really, really tough. And, and I'm going to add one more, if I, if I might. I, I, the platforms themselves, you know, social media platforms have not been as aggressive and as open to fighting these issues as as we would like to see as 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 we need um and i i want to emphasize on the freedom of expression thing because i often get oh caulfield wants to censor people you know go through my feeds go through the stuff i've written i've never advocated censorship um I, i'm a strong believer in freedom of expression um i i think even th something like deplatforming uh, should be an instrument of last resort and should only be implemented after transparent rules are, have been 
you know, infringed again and again, right? The, everyone knows the rules and this individual's, you know, our entity has uh, gone over those rules again and again. Um, in fact, I think what we want to use, the first tool should always be tools that are really part of, of our information environment. Um, and that, that are things like debunking, pre-bunking, you know, using social media platforms to highlight when, when misinformation is being spread. You know, let's use those evidence-informed strategies first uh, and, you know, the more sort of aggressive regulatory tools after. I, I, I do believe in regulatory tools being used a bit more aggressively when you're talking about professionals because holding a professional to a standard of care is not censorship, right? That is like trying to create a, uh, a standard of care. But um, yeah, don't don't play the censorship card when you know that it's just a, a rhetorical tool. Professor Caulfield, uh, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to ask you an uncomfortable question. Why haven't you written at least a dozen books? <laughs> uh, it takes time. <laughs> I'm editing my I'm editing my latest right now. Uh, I'm I'm almost i'm hope i'm hoping that the the next one will be out in in 2024 early 2024 and i and i touch on a lot of the things that we've talked about today give us a, give us a quick summation of of your most uh, recent book because i i think it would be unfair to to leave the audience without the impression that you can probably get it on amazon tonight <laughs> and and it's important that you do that uh thanks charles yeah the, the book i'm almost i'm fairly I'm fairly certain it's going to be called the uh, certainty illusion. And I, I really talk about the way our information environment is rigged to lie to us in so many different ways. And, and, and I, I, you know, I take on um, the research environment and all the problems with the research environment. I, I take on um, the degree to which the opinion uh, um, information environment has been, has been um, twisted. So everything from, from ratings on on social media to you know how the news media has has been has been twisted. So I try to look at all those things, and, and as always, Charles, I try to you know inject a little bit of fun and entertainment into the book too. The certainty of illusion, Dr. Timothy Caulfield, a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and uh, Policy, a professor at the University of Alberta, and a good friend of this broadcaster slash podcaster. Dr. Caulfield, looking forward to our next visit. Thanks so much, Charles. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.